Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing thing it is to have a God that is so infinitely wise, so infinitely good, and has so infinitely provided for us that we may ask with full confidence and with boldness and know that you are capable and willing. And so we ask that you would uh, take this text, make it a part of our lives. Pray for Tom as he teaches And we ask that your spirit would work in our lives this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Boy, just uh, listening to Bob read this passage, I I get chills every time I hear it, every time I read it, and I've read it thousands of times. I have to say, as we uh, arrive here at the end of the first half of Ephesians, I'm reluctant to move on. It's not because the second half of Ephesians is some kind of downgrade. (laughs) That's definitely not the case. It's because I believe that some here are not convinced yet that all of these outrageous riches actually belong to you in Christ. I'm concerned that some of you will go from this point in the next passages and you'll never give another serious thought to the extravagant wealth that God has made yours in Jesus Christ. And worse yet, that you'll never lift up another fervent prayer to praise God and thank Him that these things, these marvelous, marvelous gifts are actually yours. And that would be sad indeed because the promises and the prayers in the first half of Ephesians are the very bedrock of the Christian life. Both the promises and the prayers. See, we children of God are supposed to be infected with and pervaded by the the constant awareness of what Paul calls the unfathomable riches of Christ that God has freely made ours, that He has lavished upon us through our union with His Son. To borrow from our our master punmeister, Bob, on Wednesday, he said we are all supposed to have a serious case of spiritual affluenza. And my concern, beloved, is that some of you have only a mild case of that marvelous infection. And that makes me reluctant to move on until we're we're all fully symptomatic. 
But God has the perfect solution for my reluctance. And that solution is this prayer. This marvelous prayer that finishes out the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's actually two prayers in verses 14 to 21. The first is a prayer of request in verses 14 to 19. The second is a beautiful doxology. I'll explain doxology a little later. Paul began the first half of this marvelous epistle, the first three chapters, with a prayer, first with a prayer of praise to God for all that He has given to us in Christ, and then with a prayer of request to God to make us know what He has given to us. And now at the end of this first half of the book, he wraps up, he flips that. He wraps up with a request to God followed by a doxology, a prayer of praise and glory to God. It's like two bookends that are pointing inward. And that layout is not a coincidence. There's a reason that Paul's proclamation of our spiritual riches is surrounded on both sides by prayer. And the reason I believe fundamentally is that it is not the outrageous gifts that God has given to us that are the source of our blessedness and our well-being. It's the giver who is the source. The gifts show off the giver. The gifts draw our attention to the giver. They point us to the source so that we may all come to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but You, Lord? And besides You, I desire nothing on this earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but You are the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance forever. And so now, after declaring the extravagance of God's amazing grace toward us in Christ and all of its wonderful facets, and from every angle that he can come up with, Paul now prays that we would be filled up to overflowing, not with the gifts, but with the giver of the gifts. The prayer in verses 14 to 19 is as deeply personal as any prayer that you'll, you'll find in the Bible. It's about God and His people, individually and corporately. This prayer sets aside, it's amazing, this prayer sets aside every consideration of our circumstance. It sets aside every consideration of our history. It even sets aside every consideration of our future in Christ. This prayer focuses entirely on what God is powerfully at work in us to make known to us right now. And it's not about what we know. It's about whom we know. Paul introduces this prayer by telling us why he's praying and to whom he's praying. We'll go with the to whom part first. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, what's the, who are the families in heaven? In Matthew 22, Jesus said, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So, what families in heaven is Paul talking about? Peter O'Brien in his commentary on Ephesians points out that in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament that was used in Paul's day, 
The same word for family is used in reference to the angels in heaven as the family above. The family above. So there's one big family in heaven and there's a lot of other families here on earth. And God is the one who names them all. And that's actually very significant. Why do you think Paul includes this mention of God naming every family before he begins his prayer? Well, if you go all the way back to the second chapter of Genesis, God assigned to Adam the task of naming all of the animals that God had created. And that was an outworking that was really the seed form, the expression of God's assignment to Adam to have dominion over his creation, to manage his creation on his terms by his power. In other words, naming is an expression of dominion. But Adam didn't name himself. God named him. Very interesting name too, Adam. It's a derivative of the word that means dirt ground, earth. And it became the name of mankind. The names that God gives to men and women in the Bible reveal both His perfect knowledge of them and His absolute sovereignty over them. Here in Ephesians, Paul, Paul goes to the One who named us and knows us fully. And he asks Him to do His miraculous work in us so that we will know Him fully. He says, for this reason, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For what reason? Well, the phrase for this reason in verse 14 is picked up from verse 1 of chapter 3. And in between, Paul started the chapter, he said for this reason, and then he gives us this long parenthesis, and then he comes back in verse 14. I believe that For this reason, in verse 1, points backward and it points forward. It points to the parenthesis, but it also points to everything in Ephesians that came before this. And that was all. All that came before was about those unfathomable riches of Christ that had been given to us, that lavished upon us. And then verses 1 to 13 of chapter 3 is about the stewardship that God had entrusted to Paul to reveal those unfathomable riches to the Gentiles and and now to us, right? Because it's in the Word. To tell God's children what they have been given and whose they are. See, I, I believe Paul is saying, for this reason, because God gave to me the sacred assignment to proclaim to you the outrageous, unfathomable wealth that belongs to you through your union with Jesus Christ, I now bow my knees before the Father, and I pray this prayer for you. But but why wasn't the proclamation sufficient? Paul's done a marvelous job of laying these gifts before us. Why the need for the prayer? Beloved, it is not enough for us to know all about the gifts that have come to us from God's gracious hand. That knowledge will not tell us all that we need to know about the giver. It will tell us a lot, and it's very important for us to have that knowledge. But the reason this prayer is here is because that's not all it takes for us to truly know God. 
It's first placed at a critical strategic point in a brilliantly constructed letter. It's right at the transition between what we have been given and whose we are in Christ and what we therefore are to do as the children of God. It's the right at the, the hinge between the theology and the practice. You and I need to understand why this prayer is here. And it's here, beloved, because knowing what God has done for us and given to us is not the same thing as knowing God. It's indispensable to knowing God, but it's not the same thing. The first part of Paul's request is that God would grant to us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. So where is the locus of this power? In other words, where is this power of God to be exercised. Well, verse 16, in the inner man. Verse 17, in your hearts. Verse 20, within us. This is not about God changing things up around us. This is about God profoundly changing us from the inside out. In his first prayer of request, back in chapter 1, Paul asked God to enlighten the eyes of our heart. The eyes of our heart, not these eyes, but these eyes. So that we would know, among other things, the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Paul said that that us-directed power of God is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of His Father above every angelic and human authority that exists. Paul referred to that very same power in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 as the power that God had put to work in Him, in Paul, to enable Him, to equip Him to fulfill His stewardship. To us, the the stewardship God had entrusted to him to preach these riches to us. Now, Paul says that same power that raised Christ, that enabled me, he's praying that that God will put that power to work in us, in all of us. And in case you haven't picked up on this already, that power that Paul's asking God to put to work in you and me is a person. He's not saying... May the force be with you. He's saying, may God grant you to be strengthened with His power through His Spirit in your inner man. It's not some power that God hands off to you. (laughs) It's the power that belongs only to the sovereign and all-powerful God who called everything that exists into being with nothing more than His spoken word. That's real power. It's the power that is owned by the third person of the Trinity who has taken up residence in every person whom God has saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that means that if you have not trusted in Jesus as your one and only Savior, this power is absolutely foreign to you. You have nothing to do with it and it has nothing to do with He has no place in you. Paul's request is for God to put His own divine power to work inside of us in our inner man. (laughs) 
And beloved, the work of the power of God in your inner man is not about how you feel. It's not about how you feel. It ought to affect how you feel, but it's not measured or determined by how you feel. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But He never lacked the power of God in the inner man. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he always carries about with him a deep and continual concern for all the churches. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says that at one point during his ministry to these very saints in Asia Minor, he and his co-workers were, quote, burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Does that sound like he felt good? But in the very next verse, Paul says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. It was the resurrection power of God that kept Paul and his co-workers going no matter how how they felt. Their trust, their enablement, their power was Christ in them. Paul's request is that God will put that power to work in our innermost being. And here's the goal of the request. Here's the goal. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's a mouthful, isn't it? How's that for a goal? We're going to look at the middle part of that goal first, and then we're going to look at what surrounds it on both sides. (laughs) Paul prays that God will strengthen us in the inner man to comprehend and to know. To comprehend and to know what? The love of God that surpasses knowledge. The fact that it surpasses knowledge doesn't mean you can't know it. It just means you can't get to the end of it. Paul's request here applies both to you as an individual and to the church corporately. I know that because in verse 18 he says that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. He says... We who belong to Christ through faith in Christ alone, we have already been rooted and grounded in that love that God has for us. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, Paul said that our entire salvation, which he views as one whole thing from beginning to end, is because of His great love with which He loved us. See, Paul's not praying that God will make us the objects of His love. (laughs) If you believe in Jesus... God already has made you the object of His love eternally. And He's he's proven, He's demonstrated that love at the cross. Romans 5.8, John 3.16, the proof of God's love is already done. You don't have to ask, does God love me? It drives me crazy. I'm sorry, it drives me crazy when I hear Christians ask that question. I say, have you looked at the cross? God's love for you, brothers and sisters, is the very ground on which you stand in your eternal union with Jesus Christ. 
Paul isn't asking God to love you. He's asking God to make you know his love to the very depths of your soul so that you become controlled by that love. So that that love is your grid for everything. Absolutely everything. He isn't asking that we know more about God. (laughs) It's vitally important that we know about God. We need to know God's revelation of Himself in His Word. But until His Spirit, until His Spirit burns this into our hearts, it's just words. What makes it living and active is the one who wrote it, who dwells with it. It's nice to have the author living inside you. The knowledge that Paul is asking God to give us here is personal knowledge. It's like the knowledge I'm talking about when I say, I know my wonderful wife better than anybody. I'm not referring to things I know about my wife. You might know those too. I'm saying I know her. Paul is asking God to give us a powerfully transforming personal knowledge of the living God. I said a minute ago, we're going to look at the middle part of the goal and then at what surrounds it on both sides. The middle part is Paul's prayer that God will make us in the core of our being comprehend and know intimately the love that God has for us. But here's what surrounds that request on both sides. And this is marvelous. Guys, this is marvelous. Here's what surrounds that on both sides. That Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Knowing God's love for us experientially, personally, powerfully, knowing God's love for us fills us up with a person. Not just one person, but three. This is a very Trinitarian prayer. Look at this. He says, I pray, I bow my knees to God the Father that He would grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The Father, the Spirit, the Son, God. When people say the Trinity is not in the Bible, it's because they don't know the Bible. The preeminent goal of this prayer is that you and I and the whole bride of Christ may be filled up with God to overflowing. And here's the connection between the middle part and the part that surrounds it. Knowing God's love for us fills us up with God Himself. Listen to 1 John 5.16. This is one of the most, to me, just one of the most astonishing verses in the Bible. We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. God dwells in Him. That's the goal of this prayer. Some of you here today do not intimately know and have not experienced to the core of your being the miraculous and boundless magnitude and intensity and reach and power of God's perfect love for you in Jesus Christ. You're living like paupers because you don't know how perfectly the One who made you loves you. 
And you cannot truly know God. You cannot be filled up to all the fullness of God if you don't personally, pervasively, transformingly know the power of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I have a little assignment for you and I want you to write it down. How many times have I asked you to do that? Very infrequently. If you can't write it down, you can probably remember it. After you leave here today, sometime when you can be alone with God, I want you to read Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. Some of you already know it by heart. Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. And when you read it, I'm asking you to look carefully in that passage at what God has not promised to you as His child and what God has promised to you as His child. You got it? Romans 8, 35 to 39 What has God not promised to you and what has God indeed promised to you? I assure you, it's not rocket science to figure it out. At youth camp, an eighth grade boy figured it out in five seconds after I put that passage up on the screen. And then once you have smoked out both of those things, what God hasn't promised to you and what God has promised to you, beloved, stop holding God to promises that He has not made and hold Him relentlessly to the promise that He has made. The explosively powerful, life-giving promise that He has made. And then pray that promise back to God and make that a habit. Tell Him that you believe His promise to you. That you are counting on, banking on His promise to you. Ask Him to make that promise take control of you and change everything about the way you think and talk and live and pray every day for the rest of your life. And don't do that exercise just once. Do it often. I want to wrap up by considering why this prayer was necessary. Paul is talking here to saints. He's talking to men and women and children who already, according, go back to Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14, who'd already been through this. They had already heard the message of truth, the good news of their salvation. They had believed that message and they had been sealed by the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, as a down payment from God of their inheritance in eternity until the day that God takes possession of His inheritance, which is us. Paul's talking to people who are his fellow heirs of the living God. But he's praying to our Heavenly Father and he's asking Him to do a powerful work in us, in our inner man, so that we will know and comprehend the perfection of God's love for us. So, just check this out. If Paul is praying that prayer for people that he acknowledges as believers, as his fellow saints, that means that there is such a thing as real, redeemed children of God who lack this knowledge. This comprehension of God's measureless love for them. And guys, I think there are a lot of them. They know God. At some level. They they trust Jesus. They are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. As Paul said at the beginning of chapter 2, they have been saved by grace through faith and they have been saved to the uttermost. Paul, Throughout Ephesians, Paul presents our salvation differently than he does in his other epistles. He presents it as one thing from beginning to end. 
already accomplished so that it is as if you and I who belong to Christ are already seated with Jesus in the heavenly places where God's going to spend the rest of eternity lavishing upon us the surpassing riches of His kindness and grace toward us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7. So God saved us so He can spend the rest of eternity pouring out His grace on us. So is it well with your soul? There are people, beloved, with whom you and I will spend eternity, and there are absolutely people in this room who lack the transforming personal knowledge of God's love for them. And who has to fix that? Well, if you know me, you know, I I won't say, well, I'll fix it. No, I can't. If you say, well, they need to fix it. Those Christians need to fix it. If you say that, you're missing the point of this prayer because, beloved, it's a prayer. It's a prayer. A petition to God. We are so method-driven and we are so self-reliant that we so easily and so foolishly reduce the Christian life to a task list. We say if a believer does not have a powerful, intimate, transforming knowledge of God, that believer must resolve to know God better. He needs to double down on the spiritual disciplines. He needs to spend more time in God's Word and with God's people and doing godly things that make God visible and then he'll really know God. And when we do that, when we take that approach, we're missing the single most important truth of this powerful passage. And the point is, this is not an exhortation to Christians. That starts in chapter 4. This is a prayer to the living God. Now please hear this next part because it's critically important. All of those activities I just described, being in the Word, being in fellowship with God's people, doing the work of Christ on this earth, all of those things are critically important and they are vital to our lives as the children of God. That's how we abide in Christ. But guys, this prayer is about Him abiding in us. It's a request that God will take up residence in us in a way that fills us to overflowing. So when we say, oh, those Christians, they need to fix the deficit in their personal knowledge of God, what we're demanding they do is something they absolutely cannot do. And that's why this entire marvelous half of the book of Ephesians ends (laughs) with this prayer. Here's the truth that you and I and the church of Jesus Christ and the church at Community Bible Chapel cannot do without, beloved. We have to be people who pray. Because the only people who truly know the living God pervasively, powerfully, intimately, transformingly are not those who simply resolve to know Him. They are those who come to Him in humble, prayerful, absolute dependence looking to Him to make Himself known to us. Please don't get me wrong. We don't have to beg God to reveal Himself to us. God loves to reveal Himself to His children. We don't have to beg Him. We have to depend on Him. We have to know and live in the the awareness that that's His doing and not ours. 
Our prayers need to start looking more like Paul's prayers, brothers and sisters. Our prayers need to start looking more like this prayer. Even our prayers for the temporary concerns that we lift up to God need to be more about this than they are. When we ask God for healing, let us ask Him to use either the illness or the healing or both to make us know Him and be filled up with Him more fully. I've seen Him do that. Man, I can tell you, you guys know a lot of those accounts of believers who have been filled up with Christ because of the infirmity and the and the pain that they've suffered, the struggles that they've suffered in this life. I, I don't... Just take a minute. There's a young lady who grew up in this church. I've mentioned her before. I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, a long time. She was in an accident. She was with a daughter in a van. She was thrown from the van. The van rolled over her. She was taken to the hospital. The doctor said they, the doctors said they had never seen a body so devastated without any major organs being destroyed. About the 13th surgery that she had, I was visiting her and her husband in the hospital, and she said to me, I would not want to go back to the way I was before. God did this, God allowed this, whatever engineered, allowed, doesn't matter. I would not want to go back because I know God more powerfully and more intimately than I ever could have known Him without this. And that's life. What happens to this body? That's not life. When we ask God to give us boldness to speak of Him, let us ask Him to fill us with such a controlling awareness of His boundless love that we can't stop telling people about Him. When we ask God to, to, for wisdom and love to handle a problematic relationship well, let's ask Him to fill us so pervasively with, pervasively with Himself and with the knowledge, the personal knowledge of His love for us that we, that we can't even get in the way of reconciliation. That we are just compelled to love as we have been loved and to forgive as we have been forgiven because God has filled us up with Himself. Let's pray that way. Beloved, let's pray that way. It, it infects every prayer with affluenza. These are not things that we can resolve to make happen. This is the transforming presence of God in us that only He can bring about. Guys, this isn't about us doing. This is about us depending in order that we may do. And that means this is about us praying. Praying prayers like this. For ourselves, for one another, for this church, and for the church all over the world. Paul concludes the first half of Ephesians with the two-verse doxology. A doxology is more than a prayer of praise. The word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. It is a proclamation of God's glory. Now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Considering what Paul has already said in chapters 2 and 3 about the church as a new creation that unites both Jews and Gentiles together into one new man, and considering what he's about to say in chapter 4 about the oneness that God created between Christ's body 
and Christ himself, who is the head of the body, it would be impossible to see this as two different displays of glory that that Paul is asking for. In the church and in Christ Jesus, God be glorified. The church has its existence in Christ. The church has its identity in Christ. The church is being conformed to Christ. The church is the continuing incarnation of Jesus Christ in this world, carrying on His work by His power to seek and save the lost, expanding His kingdom. As with every doxology in the Bible, this isn't a prayer that God might or might not answer. It's an acknowledgement to God of what He has done, is doing, and will do. He has glorified Himself. He will glorify Himself. And He is glorifying Himself in the church and in Christ Jesus. And guys, that glory is going to endure to all generations. We are going to be celebrating together in the presence of God what God is doing through us forever. And He'll be the one that we're talking about. God has graciously let us in on His plan for the ages. That's what Paul talked about in chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10. (laughs) The gathering together of all things into one head, even Jesus. When God's grand plan to redeem and reconcile everything He has made to Himself, He will have gathered together everything in heaven and on earth into the headship of Christ and everything that exists will glorify Him together forever. And because of Christ in you, the hope of glory, you and I get to be part of that. It's amazing. Dear Heavenly Father, we bow before You making this request of You in humble and utter dependence because we know that You whose ways and whose thoughts are as high above our ways and thoughts as the heavens are above the earth, cannot be rightly known by the likes of us merely because we have determined to know You. We know that whatever activity would come from such a resolution on our part just won't get the job done. It will not transform us or conform us or equip us or empower us to live as Your people because it will not fill us up with You. Only You can grant that fullness, Your Father. So we humbly ask You to strengthen us with power through Your Spirit as He does His beautiful work in our inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we, having already been rooted and grounded in Your love by Your amazing grace, may be enabled by You to comprehend together with all the saints, what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge (laughs) that we may be filled up to all the fullness. Now to You, O Lord, to You who are able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine, according to the power who works within us. To You be the glory in Your church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.